So if you would, would you grab a Bible? Please take your Bibles and open it up to Mark chapter 13. Mark chapter 13. Today, it's going to be very helpful, maybe even essential, that you have a Bible. So if you didn't bring one with you, there is one in the rack in front of you. I'd encourage you to grab it and open up that Bible. If you're going to look at that Bible, it's page 825. That's Mark 13. This morning, we're going to be looking at a teaching of Jesus. We're going to be focusing on Jesus' teaching about the end times. Jesus' teaching about the last things. That's eschatology. Eschatology means the study of the last things. And this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' view on history from his time until his return. And we're going to cover this all in Mark chapter 13. And we're going to do it, hopefully we're going to do it in under 40 minutes. So hold on tight. But first, first I have a few qualifiers. Whenever we look at biblical prophecy, I think there's a few things that we want to keep in mind, qualifiers that I'm calling them. The first qualifier is this. When studying biblical prophecy, we have to understand that all of the information is not revealed. We don't have all the details. For example, well-meaning Christians well-meaning followers of Jesus for centuries, for almost 2,000 years now, have tried to predict Jesus' return. And the Bible does not encourage us to try to predict Jesus' return. It doesn't even suggest we try to predict Jesus' return. And if you'll notice, all of the predictions to date have been wrong. So first, we don't have all the details. Second, the details we do have can be confusing. And it's okay to say that. It's okay to acknowledge, it's good to acknowledge that the details that we do have can be confusing. So what that means is, that means that there are well-meaning Christians, devoted followers of Jesus, who believe different things about the end times. All good Christians do not believe all the same things about the end times. Third, one of the things that good Christians disagree on is the rapture. Now, some of you don't even understand or know what the word rapture means, and that's okay because I'm not going to talk about it today. (laughs) Now, you may think I'm taking the easy way out, which in a way I am, but as we look at Mark 13, we're going to see that Jesus doesn't talk about the rapture in Mark 13. So we're going to look at what Jesus says today in Mark 13, and we're going to focus upon that. So there's these three qualifiers that I want you to keep in mind. We don't have all the details. The information can be confusing. And this morning, we're not going to focus on the rapture or talk about that. There are two things. There are two things that all Christians do agree with on the end times. The first thing that all Christians agree about the end times is, number one, that Jesus is going to return. He is going to return. The second thing that all Christians agree on about the end times is the result of Jesus' return. That is judgment for unbelievers and final reward for believers. All Christians agree Jesus is going to return and the result of his return. Now let's look at Mark chapter 13. 
We want to see what Jesus has to say about the last things. In Mark 13, Jesus provides us with an outline of future events. It is Jesus' longest teaching in the Gospel of Mark. And we call this the Olivet Discourse. We call it the Olivet Discourse because Jesus gives this teaching to his disciples while he is seated on the Mount of Olives looking out over the city of Jerusalem. Matthew and Luke also have this story in their gospel. So in other words, there is an Olivet Discourse in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Luke as well. But here, it is important for us to understand that we are going to be, this is a survey of end times. Jesus gives us an outline in Mark 13, and we are going to survey Mark 13 to help us better understand the last things. We're not going to get all of the details this morning, but hopefully by the end, our goal is that we come out with a better understanding of the end times. And finally, I would just like to note that this is more of a, it's more of a teaching sermon than it is a preaching sermon. So let's first, let's look at the setup. The setup, verse one. As Jesus was leaving the temple, one of his disciples said to him, look, teacher, what massive stones, what magnificent buildings. Now, Jesus and his disciples, they're leaving the temple, they're leaving Jerusalem, and they're returning to Bethany to rest. Now, remember, we're still here, we're still here in the last week of Jesus' life, and Jesus and the disciples have had a rough day or two. Remember the elders, the teachers of the law, and the priests, they've challenged Jesus. The Pharisees and the Herodians, the Sadducees, they've all taken their best shot at Jesus. And now Jesus and his disciples are leaving the temple, they're leaving Jerusalem, they're on their way back to Bethany to rest. And I get the idea here that the disciples, they're kind of trying to make small talk. They're trying to kind of encourage, they're trying to give Jesus some encouragement, so they point to the beauty and the majesty of the temple. Look at those massive stones. Look at that beautiful building. And it was, it was an amazing structure. The temple complex dominated the skyline of Jerusalem. It sat on about 35 acres and made up one-sixth of the land area of Jerusalem at that time. Magnificent structure, massive stones that supported and encased the temple. There's one stone that has been measured in the foundation that's 45 feet by 11 feet by 16 feet. One stone. And that's just one of many massive stones that made up the temple enclosure, the complex, the foundation. And the temple itself was even more amazing. It rose to 150 feet in height, 150 feet into the air. And its walls and its doors and even its floors were covered in pure gold. And the rest of the temple was of purest white. It was said that when you woke up in the morning, if the sun was rising in the east over Jerusalem, you could barely stand to look at the temple because the light shone so brightly off the temple itself. There were many people that said at this time that the temple was the most awesome and magnificent structure in the whole world. It's the temple. That's what these disciples are referring to. Now let's look at Jesus' response, verse 2. Do you see all these great buildings, replied Jesus? 
Not one stone here will be left on another. Everyone will be thrown down. Well, so much for the encouragement. (laughs) Jesus looks at the temple in all of its beauty and greatness and predicts its complete destruction. The temple was Israel. The temple was Judaism. It's the dwelling of God. It's the place, it's the only place on earth where Jewish people may offer sacrifices to God. And here, Jesus predicts its complete destruction. And about 40 years after Jesus' prediction, this happened. In AD 70, the Roman general Titus enters into Jerusalem. He conquers Jerusalem and he and his army destroy the temple. After Jesus' prediction, I have to think it was probably a quiet walk across the Kidron Valley and up the Mount of Olives. But there's four disciples who recover fairly quickly. Look what they say in verses 3 and 4. As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, opposite the temple, Peter, James, John, and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things happen? And what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Peter, James, John, and Andrew, they come to Jesus privately. They're kind of Jesus' inner circle. And they decide that they need more information. So they ask Jesus two questions. Tell us when these things will happen. And question number two, what will be the sign that they are all about to be fulfilled? Did you notice? Did you notice the plural in the questions? It says these things and the sign that they are about to be fulfilled. The destruction of the temple is a singular occurrence. So why the plural here? Well, Matthew, in his account, gives us a little better understanding of what's going on here, of what's behind the questions as Mark asks them. Look at Matthew's wording of the question. Tell us, they said, when will this happen and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? You see, understandably, These disciples equate the destruction of the temple with the end of time. This would be natural for them. Such a catastrophe, the destruction of this magnificent, awesome structure certainly would mean the end of time. This center of Judaism completely destroyed would certainly mean the end of time. But Jesus here is going to predict an event far in the future his return by first predicting an event in the near future, the destruction of the temple. Now, before we continue, before we continue with the story, let's think about these questions. Because these, if we're honest, these are the questions that are on our mind, aren't they? When we think about the end of time, when we think about end times, when we think about the last things, we ask these same questions. When? When is this going to happen? And what is the sign that this is going to happen? We need to know these things, and especially the question when, right? When? When is Jesus going to return? When is time going to end? When is all this going to happen? For 2,000 years, people, and Christians in particular, have been asking the question, when? 
all throughout history. The question when. But here's the thing. Asking the question when is really not the right question. Jesus doesn't seem to spend much time focusing on the question when. Now, he's going to get to it. We're going to look at it towards the end of this text, but he doesn't seem to spend much time. And Jesus makes it pretty clear that when you focus on the when, when you focus on the when, it is the tendency for us to be misled and deceived. So often when we think about the when, we are misled and deceived. This has happened to people all throughout history. Leaders and teachers even have been deceived when they focus on the wind. So Jesus, his initial response is not to answer the question when or point to the signs, but he cautions us. He cautions his disciples from being deceived. Look at verse 5. Jesus said to them, watch out that no one deceives you. Jesus doesn't want us to be deceived, so he says, watch out, beware. This is a warning for us not to fall asleep, to keep our eyes open. Then after the warning, Jesus provides us an overview. The rest of the text is Jesus providing us an overview of what's going to happen in the future. And he identifies for us three events that are going to happen in the future. It's kind of the outline that we are now going to follow. The first thing he's going to focus on is the current age. Then he's going to focus on the great tribulation. And finally, he's going to focus on his return. The current age, the great tribulation, and then his return. And he's going to conclude in Mark 13 with an application for us, an encouragement for us to be ready. So now let's dive in and let's look at the first section. The first section is verses 6 through 13. In verses 6 through 13, Jesus is talking about our current age, the current age that we live in right now. This is the time of Jesus talking here in this text, talking to his disciples, to the age that we are in now. It is the current age that we're in. And in this section, Jesus is not giving us signs. He is not giving us signs of the end. You could actually say in this section that he is giving us non-signs. These are kind of non-signs. He identifies a list of things that people throughout history have identified as signs of his coming, but they're really not signs at all. They are just descriptors of the current age that we live in. Verse 6. Many will come in my name claiming I am he and will deceive many. When you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places and famines. These are the beginnings of birth pains. If you look at all of these descriptors, all of these things, and you think that Jesus is describing our generation, you aren't alone. He is describing our generation. But the disciples also felt that he was describing their generation when he said these things. Every generation has been able to identify with these words. Wars, rumors of wars, 
earthquakes, famines, because these words describe every generation. These are not signs that the end is imminent, but they are symptoms that tell us that the process has begun. It's evidence pointing to the fact that Jesus will return. His caution, his warning to us, is that these things are not signs of an immediate or near end, but merely, as he says, the beginning of birth pains. So pay attention, watch out, and don't be deceived. Jesus then continues by focusing on the persecution that the disciples are going to face. Look at verse 9. You must be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and flogged in the synagogues. On account of me, you will stand before governors and kings as witnesses to them. And the gospel must first be preached to all nations. Whenever you are arrested and brought to trial, do not worry beforehand about what to say. Just say whatever is given to you at the time, for it is not you speaking, but the Holy Spirit. Suffering and persecution do not mean that the end is come. Did you hear me? Suffering and persecution, they do not mean that the end has come. Christians have been persecuted since the very beginning. In the first century, all of these disciples, these apostles, including the apostle Paul, and many other Christians were persecuted for the faith that they had in Jesus Christ. And Christian persecution is not just limited to the early church. There is Christian persecution today. The 20th century, the 20th century was the bloodiest century for Christians in all of history. It's estimated that up to 160,000 Christians are killed every year. Christians are dying every day for their faith in Jesus Christ. Christians are dying all throughout the world for their faith in Jesus Christ. Being buried alive and killed in the Sudan. Raped and murdered in other areas. Stoned, flogged, beaten, killed in Indonesia, in India. Arrested and imprisoned in the Middle East. Persecution and suffering was not limited to the first century. Persecution and suffering exist today as well. And again, Jesus' point is not that these are signs that the end is near, but they're birth pains. They are evidence that Jesus is going to return and the end is coming. And the anguish of persecution even involves the betrayal of family members. Look at verses 12 and 13. Brother will betray brother to death, and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Everyone will hate you because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, the end that Jesus is talking about here is not the end of time, it's not the end of the tribulation, it's the end of an individual's life. All followers of Jesus are called to be faithful unto death. Not just martyrs, 
all of us as followers of Jesus are called to be faithful unto death. Why? Because she who endures to the end will be saved. Now, she who endures to the end does not earn her salvation by enduring to the end, but she who endures till the end proves her salvation by enduring to the end. You see, only genuine followers of Jesus will survive the trial of persecution. In this first section, Jesus' point is that these are things that happen in all generations. They're not signs that Jesus is coming soon, but they are evidence that Jesus is going to return. Now, when we look at all of those things, the persecution, the betrayal, the hatred, the earthquakes, the famines, all of this is merely a prelude to a time of even greater trouble. Jesus now directs, now answers the question about the sign. What will be the sign? It's the question we're all asking. It's what we're all looking for. And now Jesus tells us, he puts it in one brief phrase. In verse 14, Jesus introduces the start of the time of the great tribulation that will begin, verse 14, When you see the abomination that causes desolation standing where it does not belong, let the reader understand. Let the reader understand. Jesus is referring here to the Old Testament book of Daniel. And he's saying, let the reader understand what Daniel prophesies in his book. Let the reader understand what Daniel has to say about this. In Daniel chapter 11, Daniel predicts, he prophesies that there will be an abomination that causes desolation that will set himself up in the temple and he will desecrate and defile the temple. He will cause a sacrilege within the temple. Now, like many biblical prophecies, this one seems to have a dual fulfillment. Partially fulfilled in history, and for us, completely fulfilled in the future. Years before Jesus, in 167 BC, the Seleucid king Antiochus Epiphanes conquered Jerusalem. He entered into the temple. He stood where he did not belong, and he sacrificed a pig on God's altar. He was hundreds of years after Daniel's prophecy and years before Jesus talks about this when he comes into the temple, Antiochus Epiphanes, and defiles the temple. So defiled was the temple that the Jewish people abandoned the temple until a successful rebellion overturned Antiochus and his successors. But here, Jesus is saying that there is more to Daniel's prophecy. There's more going on here. It's not completely fulfilled in Antiochus Epiphanes. There's going to be another abomination that causes desolation who will stand in the place that he does not belong. The Apostle Paul, 
He echoes Jesus' prophecy in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 when he talks about the man of lawlessness. And look at what he says about the man of lawlessness, who will oppose and will exalt himself over everything that is called God or is worshipped, so that he sets himself up in God's temple, proclaiming himself to be God. This is the one that we often refer to as the Antichrist. But currently, there's no temple. There's not been a temple in Jerusalem since AD 70 when the Roman general Titus destroyed it. This is why many Christians throughout history have watched with great interest the possible reconstruction of the temple. If the abomination that causes desolation... If the man of lawlessness is going to stand in the temple in the place that he does not belong, there needs to be a temple. But there's no temple yet. Now let's look at what happens next. Jesus says that when this appears, there are going to be three immediate, tremendous, and terrible results. Three things, immediate, tremendous, and terrible results. First, There's going to be immediate and sudden peril. Immediate and sudden peril so great that the people in Jerusalem and the surrounding vicinities have to flee the area quickly. Look at the second half of verse 14. Then those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one Let no one on the housetop go down or enter the house to take anything out. Let no one in the field go back to get their cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that this will not take place in winter. It's going to be a terrible time of danger, danger so intimate that people will not have time to go home and pack. They must flee immediately, otherwise they're going to be trapped. The second result is the outbreak of a worldwide time of tribulation. Look at verses 19 and 20. Because those will be days of distress. That word can also be translated tribulation. Because those will be days of distress, unequaled from the beginning, when God created the world until now, and never to be equaled again. If the Lord had not cut short those days, no one would survive. But for the sake of the elect, whom he has chosen, he has shortened them. This will be a time of unprecedented trouble a time of great economic, social, and political upheaval when everything is controlled by a central authority, by this man of lawlessness. The third result will be, look at verses 21 through 23, at that time, if anyone says to you, look, here is the Messiah, or look, there he is, do not believe it. For false messiahs and false prophets will appear and perform signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So be on your guard. I've told you everything ahead of time. There's going to be a time of worldwide religious deceit. These false Christs and false prophets who are mentioned here, they're agents of the man of lawlessness, agents of the Antichrist who will be ruling and reigning in that day. And these people will go all over collecting, designating, bringing men and women together to sit under the submission and subjection of this one ruler who rules everything, 
who declares himself to be God, who sits in the place he does not belong, and encourages others to claim that, that man is ultimately God. We start to see this, don't we? In the increased secularism that's throughout our world, that man is central to everything. This time of great distress, this great tribulation, is a future reality. And we've merely scratched the surface of this horrible event, of all that will take place in that day. As Jesus says, if those days were not cut short, no one would survive. But the thing is, they are cut short. These days are cut short. They will be cut short by an incredible, miraculous event, the return of Jesus. Jesus, in this text, with his words, tells us that someday he is going to return. He promises that he is going to return. Look at verses 24 through 26. But in those days, following that distress... The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from the sky and the heavenly bodies will be shaken. At that time, people will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. And he will send his angels and gather his elect from the four winds, from the ends of the earth to the ends of heavens. This, this is the climax of history. The appearing of Jesus Christ as Lord in great power and great glory. His powerful and glorious appearance, as all the prophets have predicted, is preceded by terrible signs in the heavens. The heavens are going to shake. They're going to completely change. Earth is going to face some miraculous telling events that are going to announce his coming. Then the Son of Man, Jesus, appears in the clouds with great power and glory with all of his angels and collects all of us who are followers of Jesus to be with him forever. Yes, and all God's people said, Amen. Amen. In light of all this, in light of everything that Jesus has just said to us, talking to us about the current age, about the great tribulation, promising his return to come gather us to himself. Jesus now turns to an application for us. He encourages us to be ready. Watch out. Be ready. Be prepared. And he begins with an analogy from nature. Look at verses 28 through 31. Now learn this lesson from the fig tree. As soon as its twigs get tender and its leaves come out, you know that summer is near. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that it is near right at the door. Truly, I tell you, this generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. When the leaves come out, you know that two things are for sure. One summer is very near. It will not be long until the days are warm and the cold weather is over. Second, nothing is going to stop it. When the leaves appear on the trees, summer is certain to come. Jesus says that we can draw the same conclusions by seeing these events outlined in our text here. Look at what he says. Even so, when you see these things happening, you know that the end is near. Now, what does he mean 
by these things. I do not think that he means the signs, the miraculous signs that are demonstrated in the heavens, for they're not, they're not the beginning of the events. Rather, I think he is talking about the sign on earth, the appearance of the man of lawlessness in the temple in Jerusalem. When you see these things beginning to move in that direction, when things begin to make this event possible, then you know that the time of the Lord returning is drawing near. So near, in fact, that Jesus says, truly I tell you, This generation will certainly not pass away until all these things have happened. And it's also certain. It's certain to happen. How certain? Heaven and earth, these are Jesus' words. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. These words... Jesus' words here are meant to encourage us, to give us strength when it appears that God's plan may not be going the way we think it should go. When things around us seem to be overwhelming us and taking us by, out, taking, taking over and taking control and making us think that, man, this is never going to happen. But Jesus says, I tell you, Heaven and earth will pass away as solid and as real as they appear, but my words will never pass away. This is certainty. It is certain to happen. History, Jesus is saying, history is going to happen this way. This is the way that the end will come. Remember this. Regardless of what anyone else says, These are Jesus' words. And Jesus says that he is going to return for sure. Then Jesus turns and answers the question of when. When is this going to happen? Look at verse 32. But about that day or hour, no one knows. Not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father's. This means that anyone who claims to know the when is crazy. Literally crazy. Because Jesus here says, no one knows the when. No one knows the time. Only the Father. The angels don't know. Jesus himself doesn't even know. Jesus, in his humanity, let go of this information, and this information resides only with the Father. The Father is the only one who knows when all of this is going to happen. No one knows the when. So the question of when is actually not an important question because we don't know and we can't know the when. There is no way that we can know the day or the hour. But interestingly, all of the disciples, all of the disciples thought that this was going to happen within their lifetime. And Jesus speaks as though that were the case. 
So for us, it is reasonable for us, just like every other generation throughout history, to believe that this could possibly happen in our lifetimes. We don't exactly know the when, but the disciples believed it could have happened in our lifetime. Every generation has believed it could happen in their lifetime, and we too should believe that it could potentially happen in our lifetime. Jesus wants us to understand that this could happen at any time. So look what he says. Now he gives us the important thing, and he says, be ready. Look at verses 33 through 36. This is what Jesus says. Be on guard. Be alert. You do not know when that time will come. It's like a man going away. He leaves his house and puts his servants in charge, each with their assigned task, and tells the one at the door to keep watch. Therefore, keep watch, because you do not know when the owner of the house will come back, whether in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or at dawn. If he comes suddenly, do not let him find you sleeping. When I say to you, what I say to you, I say to everyone, watch. Jesus' last words, his application, his encouragement for us is be ready. Watch. Keep your eyes open. Do not fall asleep. Stay on guard for, about, for what is about to happen. You see, we are told to watch. We are told to watch for Jesus' return anticipating that heaven and earth will pass away, but his words are never going to pass away. What he says is true and faithful. So Jesus says, watch, watch for my return, but not only watch for my return, watch everything else that is happening around you so that you will not be misled or deceived. You see, there is going to be persecution. There are going to be trials. There are going to be difficulties in your life. And the problem is, is that the persecution, the trials, the difficulties have a tendency to, to cause us to shut our eyes, to hide, to even take naps, to fall asleep. But Jesus says, wait, all this stuff is going to happen around you. So don't only watch for, wait for my return, but watch what's happening around you so nobody comes in and wrecks and steals from your house. Don't let what is happening around you get you down. Don't let what is happening around you cause anxiety. Don't let what is happening around you cause you fear. Because yes, heaven and earth, they're going to pass away but my words will never pass away. What Jesus says, he is true and he is faithful and his call to us is to be obedient and faithful to him so that when he returns with all of his angels, he is going to send them to the four corners of the earth and he is going to gather us to himself so that we can be with him forever. Watch for Jesus' return and watch and be ready for everything that's happening around you, recognizing that everything that is happening is evidence that Jesus' words are true and faithful. And he is going to return. And all God's people said,